Good morning. My name is Matt, and I serve as an elder here at FBC. Uh, today we'll be reading from Luke 23, 50 through 56. Now there was a man named Joseph from a Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. He was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in a linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb cut in the stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The woman who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how the body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointment. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. You may be seated. Thank you, Matt. Good morning. We're uh, continuing in Luke, as we have been for a while. Luke 23, 50 through 56. Matt uh, read that for us. We've got, uh, I don't know, two or three more weeks in Luke, and then we're going to have that book uh, all wrapped up, finally coming uh, to the end of that. Let me uh, start with prayer, asking God to be with us as we spend a little time in his word this morning. God, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who uh, works in our hearts to make known to us what your word means and, in fact, how we ought to respond, what it looks like for us to demonstrate our faith in Christ, to worship through obedience, to uh, settle our hearts and minds on you. And so, God, we pray this morning as we look at your word that you would change us by the power of your spirit and you would show us what it looks like to live like Christ until the day he returns. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, last week, of course, was Easter, and we celebrated the resurrection of Christ. We talked a lot about that, and as we're picking up where we're going in the book of Luke, Luke uh, 23, verses 50 through 56, uh, is the burial of Jesus. And it's a little bit tricky, because I don't want to ruin the story for you, but he raises from the dead. I don't know. We're going to talk about his burial, but you know how, where the story is going. You know what's going uh, to happen. But what we want to do is take some time to understand why his burial was so critically important, because it turns out it was. There was no single element of Christ's work to redeem through his death, burial, and resurrection that can be overstated. In fact, we might, in some ways, understate the necessity uh, of Christ's burial. We might, might even say that he was just buried because what else are you going to do? That, you know, he was buried because he, we had a body, you have to dispose of the remains. Of course, that's a very Western and very secular, non-spiritual way, spiritual way that we think of burial. Of course, when we think of burial, somebody passes away, we assume you do need to properly deal with uh, their remains. And so we think of burial as a way of both handling the practical matters, while at the same time establishing a way in which we can fondly remember the individual. 
right? So uh, we might uh, have an urn, or we might have a place in uh, a cemetery, or maybe a place in a sarcophagus, or maybe a place on, in a wall in which we are going to uh, uh, understand, of course, that the remains are there, but really it's a means for us to be reminded of a person that meant something in our lives. So it's a means of memorial. It's a means of remembrance. Now, the Jewish person would not be thinking of the tomb in that way. The, the tomb is the doorway to what's next. It, it's the marker that tells you you're going somewhere. The, the Jewish mind says you're going from here to the next life, Sheol as we might uh, sometimes call it in, in the Scripture. And, and, this, and the next life goes on for everyone. The question is not whether or not the tomb serves as a gateway to what's next. The question is, are you going next to fellowship with God forever, or are you going next to judgment? That becomes the question. So this is what, what the tomb would mean there. So it's a, it's a primary component. Jesus being, being buried is a primary and important component of what it means for him to bring salvation for those who would trust him. And we're going to take some time today to show you, both in your Old Testament and in your New Testament, why the burial of Jesus was so critically important, and why it, it actually should mean so much to us as believers, day in and day out, that Christ uh, was, was buried. A tomb of hope. We're going to start any discussion of a graveyard where you would expect to, and that's Costco. I, I don't know if they sell... Uh, caskets, do they? I mean, is there, I haven't been on their website. You can, somebody can Google it. Yeah, they've got a great deal. It's like a three-pack, though. It's all shrunk wrapped together. That seemed inappropriate as I was saying it, just so you, so you know. We're not talking about caskets at Costco, but here, I've got two Costco illustrations today, so buckle in. So, when you go to Costco, somebody, I was, I was shopping there the other day, and I was checking out, and uh, the person next to me, because I was at one of the self-check things, was asking the attendant, the, the payment thing wasn't working properly, they couldn't, couldn't pay for their order. And the person came over and looked at what they were paying, and said, oh, well, here's the thing, we accept cash, we... We accept your debit card, and, and if you want to pay the credit card, we accept a visa. But we don't take MasterCard, we don't take American Express, we don't take uh, Uncle Bob's credit card. And so if you want to pay, if you want to pay, you have to pay a particular way. They don't take MasterCard or American Express. So the question is, what are the means, what are the ways in which payment can be issued? And so the question we might have is, when it comes to the debt of sin, we, would, we should wonder, if we want to have peace with God, what are the means by which the debt can be paid for? We know what the debt is. What's the debt? Death. The wages of sin is death. That's Romans 6.23. We know what the debt is. The question is not what the debt is. The question is what are the, the ways in which it could be paid? And you say, well, you have to die. And you say, no, no, no. Not all forms of payment are accepted. In fact, what we're going to discover is the only form of payment that's going to be accepted is death on a tree is accepted. So it's a particular way, not die uh, in other ways, it's death on a tree. And what I want us to do is we look at the burial, we're going to then see why this burial was so important for the people of Israel and, and how that's connected with why Jesus had to die on a tree. He couldn't fall down the stairs, he couldn't be hit by a car, couldn't, he had to die on a tree. And that tells us what his burial means. And this is critically important. When Jesus died on the cross, 
He received the curse of the law. When Jesus died on the cross, he received the curse of the law because he was executed on a tree. And since he bore the curse of the law, he needed to carry that curse of the law for us. So look at uh, Luke chapter 23, verse 50. There's a man named Joseph from the town of Arimathea. I'm not exactly sure where that is. Three or four different places it could be. Doesn't really matter. We just know he's from Arimathea. He was a member of the council, so he was important. He had both political and religious connections. He was one of the good guys on the council. As you remember, on the council, there was a number of guys, as you're reading through the Passion Week narrative, that weren't so great, punching him, mocking him, all these sorts of things. And there were a number of people on the council that had at least secretly put their faith in Christ. Joseph appears to be one of them. Another one is a guy named Nicodemus, who, though he isn't described here in Luke, we know uh, from the Gospel of John, he assisted uh, Joseph in burying Jesus with some 100 pounds of spices and things that they wrapped him in. So Joseph took intentional effort to make sure uh, that Jesus was buried. And interestingly, if you think about Jesus, he told the disciples a lot about his ministry and about what was coming up. He told his disciples he had to go to Jerusalem. He told his disciples he had to suffer at the hands of sinful men. He told his disciples he had to die, right? He also told his disciples that three days later, just like Jonah, he would... Raised from the dead. But what did Jesus not tell his disciples to do? Interestingly, he never gave instructions on what to do with his remains. I mean, there was no will. There was no instructions. Oh, by the way, after I die, here's the proper procedure for burying the Messiah. They, they, it never came up. It was never asked. Now that we think about it, why didn't the disciples ask? Well, Jesus, since you're dying, uh, what should we do? I mean, with, with you. Well, but nobody asked. And the reason is they didn't want him to die. You're hoping it wouldn't happen. But Jesus did die. And now Joseph takes that upon himself as a righteous man who had put his faith in Christ, even though maybe secretly that he was going to take it upon himself to, to deal with the situation. Look at the end of verse 51, something about Joseph. Joseph, of course, didn't consent to their decision, which was to crucify Christ. He was looking for the kingdom of God. It's a really, really important descriptor of what it meant for him to have hope in God. And why is that an important descriptor? Because a lot of people in Israel had hope in the kingdom of God, but not hope in the kingdom of God. And you have to say it with a little deeper voice. The difference is they liked the idea of being Jewish to the degree it benefited them. I like the idea of being Jewish because it gives us a little pull with the Romans. It gives me a little pull with my local synagogue leader. It gives me a little pull with my uh, high priest. I know that when I, I have something break down on my house, I got a guy at the synagogue who's going to do me a favor. And it works out in a community to have these close uh, connections and everybody knows their pecking order and their social order. And, and so some people look for appreciated the kingdom of God for how it worked for them today. That's not Joseph. Joseph here is someone who is looking forward to the kingdom of God. That is, the kingdom of God that as of yet is unseen. It's a matter of faith. We know that one day God's kingdom will come in all of its glory, but it's not here today. That's quite obvious. So he's not looking for faith in Christ or the kingdom of heaven because of the practical benefits it brings his life. He's hoping for a kingdom someday. That's what he's looking forward to. 
And so therefore, as someone who loved God, looked forward to the one day, the culmination of the kingdom of God, and, and he loved Christ, he knew that, that Jesus' body needed to be appropriately uh, dealt with. Verse 15, the man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. That was risky, to say the least. Pilate, of course, granted the body to Joseph, and Joseph then took the body, wrapped it up in linen, and laid it in a tomb cut in stone, a tomb no one had yet been laid in. Now, some of us might find that peculiar, and it would certainly would be peculiar today if somebody says, hey, where'd you, uh, where are you going to be buried? I'm going to be buried uh, up at Hillcrest, but I've specifically asked for a gravesite that is unused. And I mean, most of us now, he's like, aren't they all? Aren't the current ones available? The unused ones. So that sounds a little bit strange to us. Aren't all tombs unused? And the, and the answer is no, not back then. Because the way in which they would bury people is different than it is today. And, and honestly, it's a little bit gross. But I'm going to describe it to you nonetheless because I see there's some guys here. <laughs> And guys, we can put on a, a good facade, but for the most part, we're middle schoolers. And we'll take a gross story. So what they would do is they would put a body in a tomb that had, of course, a block, and it was laid on uh, a stone. And usually it had ways in it. So as things broke down, the things would flow away. And you would leave the person there long enough, in a fairly lengthy period of time, until all that remained was the bones. And then once that process was done, which could take a long time, you would open the tomb, collect the bones, and they would be stored in a much smaller container. And that container might be kept uh, in your home. It might be kept in a spot uh, in your property where you have these boxes of people. And so therefore, once this has happened, that tomb is now available for the next person to be laid on the slab. And this could, a family might have one of these tombs that might have been used for generations. And of course, it also was kind of a mark of wealth. So it was important to know that no one else had ever been in this tomb before and left there for a time and had their bones collected. This is the first time that it had been, been used. And of course, when Jesus passed away and Joseph asked Pilate for his body, Pilate was a little bit astonished that Jesus had already died. Normally, that would take longer than it did. Pilate had him checked. The Roman soldiers checked him. Jesus was, in fact, dead. It was getting towards sundown, and it became critically important that Jesus be taken off of the cross and buried before sundown. Why is this critically important that it happened, both for Joseph, all of the Jews, and for us? First thing, it's almost Sabbath. The next day is Sabbath. Look at the end of verse 54. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. Now, of course, Jewish folks understood their days different than we do. The day begins at sundown. And so it was on Friday. Jesus had been on the cross most of the day. And it was getting near sundown. And once sundown arrived, it's now Saturday, which is the Sabbath. So what this means is, if you're going to deal with those who are on the cross, they need to be dealt with before sundown. Because you have two kind of critical issues. Number one, you have Sabbath, which has things. You're, you're supposed to rest that day. And so this needs to be done before the Sabbath starts. And this is also an important weekend because it's Passover weekend. And if you want to be available to enjoy the, the feasts with your family throughout the weekend, you're going to need to be ceremonially clean. 
and you are not ceremonially clean if you have handled a body. But thankfully, the law provides for that. If you have to touch a body, you are simply unclean to win. Sundown. So how long till sundown? You can handle a body up till five minutes before sundown? 30 seconds. Just make sure you're done and you walk away before sundown. And then once sundown hits, what are you? You're good to go. So Joseph knew if we're going to deal with this, we need to deal with this before sundown. It's going to be critically important. There's another important matter that is we need to recognize. And I'm going to turn to a passage. I think it'll be up on the screens. Deuteronomy chapter 21, beginning in verse 22. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is what? Cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So here in the law, Deuteronomy 21, we learned something about God's uh, perspective on how he is to be worshipped. If somebody is put to death and then put on display, uh, they must be brought down. And, and somebody who is put on display as a murderer, hung on a tree, they are considered cursed. They receive upon themselves a curse from God. And you say, well, why is that the case? You can ask God. He wrote the law as an expression of his glory and the way he wanted his people to worship him. And he wanted them to know this. If somebody commits a capital offense and they are displayed, doesn't mean they were killed on the tree. They could have been killed, as we're going to see in some of the examples, and then put on display. And why would you put somebody on display? That sounds barbaric. It is. But it's a means of saying, here, justice has been done. The murderer has paid the proper price for their crime. They have suffered death. And that's appropriate to do. Say, look, nope, justice has been done. The one who was killed has received on himself the curse of the law and now has been killed and receives the curse for their offense. But having been cursed by God, displayed on a tree, they are to be brought down before sundown. Because uh, God says that they've received the curse, but you don't want to defile your land by having people hanging around on display. They're to be brought down before sundown. This happened a couple of times in your Old Testament. I'm going to look at two examples in Joshua. Joshua chapter 8, verse 28. They had just defeated Ai, second try. Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones, which stands there to this very day. So here you have Joshua. He has defeated Ai at God's command. He has killed the king. The king appears to have either died in battle or after the battle. And then he puts the king on display on a tree. Now, why would you do this? It's to let people know God's justice has been done here. God has come, judged AI guilty, and they have received upon themselves the guilt of their sin. And so they are displayed as guilty. Now, if you're a conquering war hero like Joshua, how long would you want to leave the king of AI on a tree? Until you beat all the guys. That's how long, wouldn't you? I would want to leave. So somebody comes to me, 
the king of uh, some other city, Bethel or Lachish or something like this. They come to me and say, hey, Joshua, let's do battle. I say, why don't you consult with the king of Ai up there? See what he might suggest. Oh, what's that? Yeah, he's dead. So it, it, it's a way of communicating fear to your enemies. But God says, no, you don't get to do that. You put him up there, but he needs to be in the ground before the end of the day. Interestingly, the king of Ai is not a Jew, is he? He's a Canaanite. Doesn't matter. The point is, God says, if you were put, put a display on, put in dis, on display, that person needs to be buried before the end of the day because they have been cursed. Let's look at another time. Jo Joshua chapter 10. This time we don't have one king. We got five. Joshua defeated five kings. Why well, won't go through all their names? They're hard to pronounce. Next time I'll have Matt read that one. <laughs> Afterward, Joshua struck them and put them to death. They had been hiding in a cave. He hanged them on five trees. And they hung on the trees until evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded and they took them down from the trees threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves and they set large stones against the mouth of the cave which remain to this very day. It was understood by Joshua. It was understood by the Jews. It has been understood since Deuteronomy was written. If somebody is hung on a tree, they are cursed. What was Jesus? He was hung on a tree and so he was cursed. The, the mere fact of being hung on a tree and displayed on a, a tree, whether it be a cross, whether it be a single tree, whether it be a post, whatever it is, that person brings a curse that defiles them, and they don't want that defilement to defile the land, so they are to be buried. The Apostle Paul picks up on this in Galatians chapter 3, a very familiar verse, but we're going to read it nonetheless because it's important that you know I'm not making this stuff up. This is what the Apostle Paul had to say. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Where does it say cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree? You can't remember. It's Deuteronomy 21. Come on, that was just like three minutes ago. I can start over. <laughs> Let's do it. So the Apostle Paul is saying what I've just described to you through Deuteronomy 21 and through the examples of Joshua, that somebody who was crucified on a tree is cursed. Verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So Jesus died on the cross on purpose, meaning he was not going to be killed in any other manner. Remember, he's, people tried to kill him a, a number of times. Uh, people in Nazareth tried to throw him off a cliff. Remember? He wasn't going to die being thrown off a cliff. Why? But Deuteronomy doesn't say, cursed is he who is thrown off a cliff. It says, cursed is he who is hung on a tree. He's not going to die being thrown off a cliff. A uh, number of times people picked up stones to stone him. Was he going to be killed being stoned? Absolutely not, because Jesus is always in charge. Jesus was going to die on a cross. That has always been the plan. One author put it this way. I love this phrase. There was a cross in the heart of God for all of eternity. It has always been a cross. 
What came first, the plan of the cross or Deuteronomy 21? The plan of the cross. When God was communicating to Moses, Deuteronomy 21, oh, by the way, write this down, cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree, he was thinking about his plan to come save us by hanging on a tree so that he could become a curse for us. Jesus died on the cross to bear our curse. Everyone else who has died on a tree bore their own curse. Jesus did not have to bear his own curse because he was not hanging on a cross for his own sin. He goes on a tree and bears a curse, but unlike everyone else who has ever hung on a tree, he did not bear his curse, he bore our curse, so that he redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. What does it mean to be cursed? It's, it's relatively simple. Number one, it means you're going to die. Secondly, it means you receive upon yourself condemnation for that which you are cursed. So, those of us who are sinners, that's all of us, we received just condemnation for having rebelled against God. So we are cursed, meaning our relationship with God is severed because we have disobeyed him. So we're condemned, cursed. Jesus, though, does not have any sin, and his relationship with God is not severed. He instead bears that curse on our behalf, and he carries that for us. So Jesus had to be buried. Why do you have to be buried? Because he hung on a tree. And what happens to anyone who hung, hangs on the tree if you're going to fulfill the law? What happens? They need to be buried before sundown. So Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus got some linens, got some spices, and made sure our Savior, who had become a curse for us, was buried before sundown. So Jesus was buried. Jesus was dead. Jesus was cursed. So when Jesus goes into that tomb, he carries into that tomb death. He carries into that tomb curse. He carries into that tomb all the things you and I are unable to carry. And he goes into the tomb, and the stone is rolled in front of him. This is why Jesus had to be buried. Because he took a curse upon himself that we couldn't carry. Jesus died, but what dies with him? The curse. He carried it. A tomb of hope. Jesus lives. Um, it's been a few minutes, so let's get back to Costco. <laughs> I don't want you to think of Costco as a grave, uh, except for these illustrations. So when you go to Costco, number one, you can only pay in particular ways. Here's how you pay, and what's the only way you can pay for sin? On a cross, because you have to carry the curse to the grave. But here's the great thing about what happens when you leave Costco. When you leave Costco, there's a person standing at the open grave. I mean, the open door. <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> Depends on how busy it is. If it's not busy, I don't mind it. But if it's really busy, I want to get out of there. There's a person standing there, and they look at the receipt. And, and, and when, when you leave Costco, you show them the receipt, and they write a smiley face on it if you have a kid with you. I found, though, if you tell them, my kid's not here, but he'll want the smiley face. He doesn't, but I want the smiley face. I should get one. Um, they check to make sure it's paid. And when you leave, your debt stays. They don't get to ask you for more money. I mean, they can, but they're not going to get it. Because when you leave, it's paid. 
And that's precisely when, when Jesus is leaving the tomb, he went in with the curse, but the curse has been fully satisfied. So when he leaves the grave, the curse doesn't come out with him. It's fully satisfied. It's fully done. We can put it this way. The law can only punish sin once. Since Jesus paid the law's price, the law is no longer binding, and the curse stays buried. That's why he had to go into that tomb, because he had to leave some stuff behind. What stays in the tomb? The curse stays in the tomb. Death stays in the tomb. He comes out, and it's fully paid for. It's handled. Verse 55 of Luke 23. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed him and saw the tomb and now his body was laid. And they returned and they uh, prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. Okay, so Nicodemus, not mentioned here, but in John, but Joseph... They had wrapped Jesus in linens, wrapped him also in lots of spices. We know from John it was some 75 to 100 pounds of spices. Why would you wrap somebody and use so much spices? Number one, it's to honor the dead. This is someone you care very deeply about, and, and it, it's a display also of, of wealth and privilege, and they, want, they felt Jesus should be honored in this particular way. But also, Jesus mentioned this in, in John 21. He said, roll the stone away because Lazarus was going to come out. And, and somebody replied to him, this verse can only be uttered in the King James. <laughs> but Lord, by now he stinketh. That's the only way. If you memorize that verse in a different, you got to, I don't know how the message does that one. So they wrapped them all in the spices because this process of the person breaking down to them eventually only being bones, of course, is decomposition, which creates an odor. And it was very typical for you to apply spices over a period of time, especially that first week or so where the odor is most difficult. And, and so it is normal to go in and, and, and do this. So they go to prepare their spices. They're, of course, not going to go on the Sabbath day. That's the day of rest. But their plan is to go on the next available day to apply additional spices. They might have gone on Saturday if it hadn't been the Sabbath day. If it would have been a different day of the week, they might have gone even the very next day. So they're going to go and apply the spices. Now, I know some of you are thinking, but there are guards there. Remember, they posted guards there, and there's a, a big stone there. It, the guards were there, but they certainly would, have mind, would, would not have minded the application of the customary spices. It, very likely the guards would have rolled the stone away. They would have certainly watched very diligently as the spices were applied. Then the stone would have been returned and they would have returned to guard duty. The guards weren't there to prevent the customs of the Jews from occurring because it's normal. The guards were there to make sure the body stayed there. They did not do a good job at that. So the, the women weren't concerned about the guards. The guards certainly would have helped them to follow their customs. This was typical of the Romans. They didn't try to do away with culture. They found they were more effective in leading people if they could keep as much of the culture. So that wouldn't have been a big deal. But what we do recognize about the way Joseph and Nicodemus prepare the body and the way the women are preparing to go and anoint the body, what do we know about everybody involved? Nobody thinks this guy is coming back from the dead. You don't prepare spices for a guy who's going to be alive on Sunday. Nobody is thinking he is going to rise from the dead. And we're going to see that as we look at the text in chapter 24 next week. Nobody, this was, it shouldn't have been a surprise, but everybody was astonished. 
And everybody was living their life during this weekend as though he was permanently dead. No one thought he would raise from the dead. Certainly Jesus was honored. Certainly he, certainly he was uh, thought of as the great teacher and the Messiah. And maybe they were thinking he would rise from the dead on the day of the Lord. Maybe he'll rise from the dead when, when all things are culminated someday in the future. But he's not going to rise from the dead in three days like he said. He was being symbolic. So nobody was anticipating this would happen. Why is it critically important for Jesus to rise from the dead? Because the dead Savior does us no good. I want to remind you of a, testament, a story from your Old Testament. I think it's one you're familiar with. It's a guy named Daniel. You've heard of this guy? Daniel and the lion's den. Daniel, is this a familiar story? I can get the veggie tails queued up if you want. We can get that going. The pickle goes in. He's fine. Here's what I want you to know. Cucumber. He's a cucumber. Okay, sorry. Ben was... He's like, he's a cucumber. Now, I've got to take a stand. Our statement of faith at FBC says, Larry is a cucumber. <laughs> um, Daniel, uh, a law was passed. For 30 days, you could only pray to the king. Daniel broke that law. So, according to the law, he was what? Cursed. There was only one penalty, and that penalty was for him to go into a lion's den. So... The king looks for a way to get him out from under the curse, but he can't. The king himself says the law, even a king can't undo his own law, according to the Medes and Persians. So Daniel is cursed. He has broken the law, and so now he's going to come under the curse, and he has to be thrown into the lion's den. It's interesting how the text describes Daniel in the lion's den. He is thrown into the lion's den. Then what do they do? Roll a stone in front of the opening, and then what do they do? They seal it with the king's seal. Does that happen anywhere else? Those are all the things that happened at Jesus' tomb too, by the way. So, stone in front of it. Daniel goes in. Thankfully, he doesn't have to be there three days. just one night. The next day, the king is there early in the morning, hoping the Lord saved Daniel, breaks the seal, rolls the stone away. Daniel comes out. Now, what has happened to Daniel in that time? He has paid the curse of the law. What's the law require if you pray to somebody else? Spend the nights in the lion's den. Now notice, the curse of the law in this case is not be eaten by lions. It's just spend the night in the lion's den. So, you can pray to whoever you want as long as you can survive the lion's den. And what does Daniel say? Sounds good. I'll take that deal. And so Daniel coming out of the lion's den, what no longer applies to him? The curse. He can pray to whoever he wants. So, because remember, the law hasn't been changed, has it? So now he can go up onto his apartment, pray on his balcony, real boisterous and loud, and they come up. Anyone who prays has to go be thrown in the lion's den. He could say, here's my survive the lion's den card. I'm good to go. I have covered the cost of the curse. So having come out of the law, having come out of the tomb, the curse is addressed. Now this didn't help the people the king then threw back into the lion's den. And they were eaten. This is the way Jesus handled the curse. He goes into the tomb. The curse is now paid for. He exits the tomb. And now there is no longer a curse that applies. There's no longer a curse that applies to him or anyone who has died with him and been buried with him. If you have died and been buried, the curse no longer applies to you. Since Jesus lives, the curse doesn't live. 
It no longer applies. The Apostle Paul picked up on this as well for Jesus' burial and death in Romans chapter 7. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. It might be on the screen. I can't remember. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person? Mute it. Are we good? Okay, there we go. There for a minute, you're like, the Lord has delivered me. His voice can't be heard. <laughs> nice try. Do you not, the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. He gives an example of marriage. Verse 2, for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. If her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she'll be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, that is to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit to God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit, not in the old way of the written code. So what the Apostle Paul is saying here is we participate by faith. When we trust Jesus, when we rely on Jesus, we participate with him by faith in his death. We participate with him by faith in his burial and we participate with him by faith in his resurrection. So when we trust Jesus, it is not an illustration that we have died in Christ. What the Bible is telling us, having trusted Jesus, we have died in Christ and have been buried in Christ and have been raised in Christ. You, what we should do is come up with some sort of ceremony where we could illustrate that. Is anybody, can anybody think of one? Baptism, what a great idea is we have somebody who has trusted Jesus and we bury them in their death and then they are raised. And we say, by faith, you are a participant of Christ in his death, his burial, and the resurrection. So therefore, what happens to somebody who has died? The law doesn't apply. What is, happens to somebody who has been buried and raised? The curse stayed in the tomb. The curse does not apply because you are dead to the law. The law can't apply to someone who has died. So to trust Jesus is to participate with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. And so the curse no longer applies to the, those of us who are in Christ. The law is gone. The curse of, is gone. Sin is gone. Our hope is in this tomb. That someone went in and came out and left our baggage behind. That's where our hope is. Because our hope is that there is no longer a curse for us. Now, this doesn't mean we live for ourselves. Look, Paul says, if we have been buried and raised with Christ, we now belong to Christ. And now, though, we get to worship him, not on the basis of regulation. You have to be good or God will smite you. That's terrible. The Bible calls us to live a life in Christ of worship because we are devoted to him. 
Because he's dealt with our sin and our curse, now we worship him from the power of the Spirit. He gives us the strength to worship and live for him in a way that brings him glory. All right, two more verses. Two more uh, places we're going to go. But they're in the same chapter. 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 12. If Christ is claimed... If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Some people in Corinth, the city of Corinth, were claiming there was no resurrection from the dead. Paul is addressing that. If there is no resurrection from the dead, not even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is as vain, your faith is in vain. We are found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope, in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If Jesus is not raised, I've said this many, many times before, let's remind ourselves. If Jesus is not raised, why did you get up early to come down here? Why in the world would you do that? Because this is what Paul is saying. If Jesus is raised, we are thinking of our life in Christ as something more than, will Jesus bless me this week? That's, that's it. If in Christ we have hope for this life only, that's pitiable. Certainly Christ brings blessings to this life, but if you just want Jesus to make your life here a little bit better, uh, the Bible is telling you that's a terrible waste of time. But like Joseph of Arimathea, he looked forward to what? The unseen kingdom of God. If Jesus is raised, then we are raised in him. That means one day we will live forever with him in his kingdom. That's what we're living for. That's what we're going for. That kingdom that has not yet Shown up. Let's look back at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verse 3 through 5. I've debated, uh, but I, th I think, I'm, I'll just say this. This may be one of the most important section of verses is in, in your New Testament. You can decide if you agree with me or not after I read it. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and he's appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and to the 12. Jesus had to die. Jesus had to die on a cross so that he would be cursed. Jesus had to then be buried so that curse would go into the tomb, and he had to come out of that tomb, leaving behind the curse, leaving behind, the de leaving behind death, so any who trust him have hope. The curse is gone. Death no longer holds sway. The law no longer applies. This is a tomb of hope because it's empty. There's no debate as to whether or not the tomb was empty. The tomb was empty. Jesus is raised so we have hope. All right, let me just finish with a couple of ideas uh, for you to think about, about this empty tomb. Um, some of us sin, being nice, trying to be nice. When you sin, I'm not being very nice. If you sin, uh, when you sin, what part of your sin do you like to carry? 
And let me explain myself. So you do something, you really blow it. You say one of the really bad swears at a driver um, bought something you can't afford. You're real greedy this week. You're really envious over somebody over there stuff for their family or whatever it is. And so you, and you feel terrible, right? You feel terrible. You did something. You feel, so the question is, what part of that sin do you like to carry? Here's some ideas. Here's some things you can carry if you can't think of anything. So let me help you out. Maybe you like to carry regret. That's a good one. I feel regret and it actually makes me feel better about my sin because I feel bad about it. If I didn't feel bad about it, I'd be worried. But I carry that regret. Sort of my way of showing God that, you know what, you know, I shouldn't have done that. My bad. So you like to carry regret. Maybe you like to carry shame. Remember, guilt and shame are a little bit different. Guilt says I did something wrong. Shame says I am wrong. Something wrong with me. So maybe you like to carry shame. That's one of the ways you feel. I've done something terrible. I need to feel terrible about myself. It's really important that I assume there's something wrong with me. I'm a bad person because I would do that, think that, say that. Here's the question we have to ask ourselves. Who bore the curse for our sin? Jesus. How much of the curse did he bear? That would be 100%. He only does things all the way. How much of that curse is still in the tomb? So the question is for us as believers, why in the world do we spend so much time carrying this stuff? Why do we spend so much time carrying this stuff? The Holy Spirit is so good at letting you know about the stuff you need to change. Don't worry about it. He doesn't need your help. That regret, that shame, that constant sense of loss. What, what, uh, by loss, what I mean is, I blew it here, so therefore the maximum amount of spirituality I can ever achieve is now ruined. Because I really blew it in my 20s. So therefore I can never be what God really would have had for me. Or here's a good one I hear all the time. I, I did something, I knew God wanted me to do this, and I chose this, so I'm never going to be able to get back to the will of God. Ever. So I will never be able to experience God's blessing. Right? No, because the curse is buried. You can't mess up the will of God. If you can mess up the will of God, it's easy. You're God. You're not. We have to, one of the things we can do as believers, yes, we should think about what does it mean for me to say no to sin? However, here's another thing we can do as believers as an act of worship. What does it mean for me as a believer when I sin? To just recognize he took the curse. I don't need to pay for it. I don't need to carry all that regret and all that shame. It's in the tomb. We don't have to carry it. That's for him to carry for us. Maybe we can think about it this way. On Resurrection Sunday, especially Easter Sunday, we, we sort of relate to the reality of resurrection because all of us at some level have been touched by tragedy. And so it's, it's helpful to recognize that there is resurrection. That's a hope for all of us who have been touched by tragedy. But Jesus' burial is for those of us who have been touched by tragedy that is our own ruin. So it's one thing when things come into our life from the outside and, and we can't control it and our life is turned upside down because something terrible has happened. We say, well, I can hope in Jesus there will be hope of resurrection one day. But sometimes our life gets turned upside down because we do really foolish things. And the, and the tomb is hope for those of us who have ruined our own lives. We didn't need somebody else to come in and do it. We're the ones that messed it up. 
We're the ones that made the comment that that person's going to remember forever. We're the ones that made the decision that we carry the debt of that for, for a long time. So the hope of the tomb is this. Jesus takes care of it for those of us who have done it to ourselves. And the curse is handled. He became the curse, so we don't have to carry the weight of that any, any longer. And it's a matter of faith, us saying, Jesus, I'm going to let you carry that. I don't need to be burdened by that. You, you paid for the sin of those who sinned on accident, and you paid for the sin of people like us that did it on purpose. And the cost was hard to bear. So this is a tomb of hope. Now, some of us don't, now that I say it out loud, it sounds ridiculous. Tombs aren't hopeful. So here's the thing. Here's the catch on that, and then we'll close with this. The tomb that contains the curse is hopeful for those of us who recognize we need help. It's not that big a deal for those of us who have never made any mistakes. And that's where the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders were. They didn't need hope from their guilt because they didn't think they had done any, anything wrong. But for those of us who have really, we look in our past and we wish some things were different, we can look at the open grave and when Jesus came out of it, he didn't bring all that guilt and shame and curse with him. He brings us hope when we put our faith in him. My prayer would be as we think about the tomb of Jesus that it also gives us hope. He took our curse with him and it didn't come out three days later. Let me pray and then we're going to close with a song. Jesus, we thank you for the glory that is your redemption through your sacrifice on the cross. And we thank you, Jesus, for the hope that comes from what you left behind in that tomb. That you died on a tree and you carried the curse of sinners into that tomb. And because you fully paid for our debt, you left it there. But Jesus, it is, it is hard for us to to experience that, uh, to let that sink into our hearts, to recognize that, that you look at us in Christ and see the righteousness of Christ. And so, God, I would pray in these moments for those of us who carry significant burdens of regret and shame and guilt, that in these moments we would see how much you paid for us, that you did it for us on purpose, that there was a cross in your heart for all of eternity for us. And you would give us the joy in these moments, God, of being freed of the burden of carrying those sins any longer. That we would see those as, as past on you. And you look forward to a relationship with us that's marked by righteousness and peace that comes because of your sacrifice and your power over death. Father, I pray for those of us as believers that you would work in our hearts, that you would set our hopes on bigger things than this world. That certainly, Lord, that we would experience the blessing that comes from knowing you here and now. But God, would you put our hopes in things that last forever? Would you help us, God, to be like Joseph of Arimathea and look forward to your coming kingdom more than anything else? God, we thank you for Jesus. We can't wait till he returns. Until then, Lord, give us strength to overcome by faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand up as we close with a song?